Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? Hope so. This will be fun, at least for me. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you will. John chapter 9 is where we're going to be. John chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you in the seat back. If you don't have a Bible of your own, then uh, come and you can take that one home with you. Or if you left your Bible here eight months ago, uh, you can go check Lost and Found. You check it for your sunglasses very quickly, but we have many, many nice Bibles with other people's names on it. If you want one of those, you can help us out and go get one of those, if you would like. John chapter 11, we are in the ninth week of a 10-week series on miracles, and it really has been a miraculous series. I mean, God has set prisoners free. God has restored relationships. God has done all kind of stuff, and we have seen miracles happen. And so... um, one of the things, and, and honestly, a lot of you, you've, you've really leaned in hard. I mean, last week you were here, and you, and you came in your prayer closet, and you reached out to the edge of the garment of Jesus looking for healing. Or a few weeks ago, you were anointed with oil, and some of you Southern Baptists are freaking out. You'd be like, man, I'm like a half a charismatic now. You've Somebody wiped oil on my head. And some of you Pentecostals are like, baby, we're just getting started, all right? And so there's been all of that, and, and the reality is, anytime you talk about miracles, you just got to say, all right, so what do you do when you're waiting on your miracle? I mean, what do you do when God's answering prayers all around you, but he's not answering your miracle? And, and sometimes you see it, and I don't know about you, but, but you can get a little frustrating, right? You show up to church, and, and you see somebody, and you say, how you doing? And I go, God is good. I'm like, hey, I know God's good. I didn't ask how God's doing. I'm saying, how you doing? They're like, oh, I'm just blessed, highly favored. Why is that? Because God just answers prayer. Oh, yeah? Like, yeah, I was praying this morning, and sure enough, he answered my prayer. Pulled up in the parking lot, and there's a space right there for me. And you're like... Okay, just shut up. We're not friends anymore. I don't like you because I have like an actual prayer request, all right? I'm not praying this little weak saw stuff. I've got like a real prayer request. And have you ever done this as you're waiting on your miracle? You've got it all figured out. I mean, you've got the, 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 the proposal and you're like, Lord, you could just run this play, <laughs> okay? I promise if you would heal this, if you would do this, if you would restore this, I'll give you all the credit, all right? I'll put it on Facebook and tag you. Do you understand? Like, I am for you. I'm not trying to get credit here. So, God, so what do you do? What do you do when you're waiting on a miracle? We're going to see a few things, a, a few observations here in Luke, I mean, in, uh, John chapter 11. There's 44 verses, so we'll be out by 4 o'clock, I promise, all right? 44 verses. Some of you are like, is he serious? Sort of, all right? Uh, John chapter 11, let's go fast. It says this, verse 1. Now, <clears throat> a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. In other words, they're very, very close. This is not like some random people that Jesus doesn't even know that well. They're very, very close. Verse 3, so the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now think about this. <clears throat> They've tried everything. They love their brother deeply. And they know that the only hope that they have is Jesus. And so you can't really send a tweet or send a text. So they do the next closest thing. They write a note. They hand it to a runner. And they say, you run to Jesus. And, and, and here's what I want you to say. Now think about it. If you had one note to send to Jesus to help somebody that you love deeply, what would you say? What they say is, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I would have typically, I, I would be tempted to go with like the resume. I would flip it around and be like, Lord, this one that loves you is ill. And here's how I know they love you. And I would go with the resume. They attend church all the time, even if it rains. They are in a disciple group. They've been on a mission trip. They sponsor seven compassion kids. They give to before all things. They are all in. In fact, Jesus, this is one of yours. You might want to pay attention. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Our love for God is not what motivates God. It's his love for us. It's not that we loved him, but he first loved us. And so they say it this way, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So think about this. If somebody rushed in here today, right now, and said, hey, hey, there's been a car accident, and the one that you love has been hurt, who would, who would come to mind? Right? Would you think maybe a spouse, a parent, a friend, kids if they're little? Because again, it, it, and it said, you can think of your teenagers, not, not he who loves you, but you love them, right? And if you're teenagers, they'll come back around. They'll love you again eventually, all right? I promise. And so, he, Lord, he whom you love is ill, verse 4, but Jesus, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is a little bit of a review from what I spent some time on last week. And me talking about this last week ruffled your evangelical feathers like crazy, so let me ruffle them some more. Um, what if God actually ordains the mess and the pain that you're in for his own glory? 
You see, God is sovereign over all things. He's before all things. He's never been surprised. He's, he's never been out of control. And the reason that this is important is because if God is not sovereign and you find yourself in a mess, then you're actually in a hopeless situation. And God is nothing more than like a, like a cosmic cheerleader hoping that you can do it, okay? I mean, that's all you get. But if God is sovereign over all things, then his sovereignty is where we find hope. Because it's in that that God can work in any situation, that God can work in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose, even if you got yourself in the mess. And so he says, hey, listen, I got this. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think the Holy Spirit inspired John to write those words because if not, the next, the next verse would confuse us like crazy because it kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, listen to how it says. It says, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, what? That, so is the wrong word. Don't you mean like, however? <laughs> like, Jesus loved them, however, he kind of ignored them. Like, so, how did, why, why can it say so here? Essentially, what Jesus is doing here is he's ignoring this request for a little while. Which doesn't make sense. Don't you read this and be like, I thought you said you loved him. I mean, last week, you're healing strangers. Remember the woman with the issue of bleeding we studied last week? He didn't even mean to heal her. You're accidentally healing strangers. You're just walking through town and somebody hits the heel button. You're like, who did that? Who touched me? Right? And this is a guy that you love and yet you're ignoring their prayer request? God, we don't understand. You know what this is the equivalent of? Sort of. It's the equivalent of today. If you call somebody and you get sent to voicemail, do you know what happens in our day and age? If you call somebody and it goes to voicemail, you see, here, 20-year-old, you're not going to believe this. There used to be a day when the phone would ring and it would just be a mystery. You'd be sitting at the dinner table. There's also a thing called a dinner table, but that's a different sermon, all right? And so we, you'd be at the dinner table and the phone would ring and it was in one place and it had a cord that would, you could reach to like, you know, Palat came back, all right? And it would just ring and it was a mystery. You'd be like, who is calling at this time of day? And then you'd play not it on who's had to answer it, right? Because <clears throat> if it was your Nana, you were stuck. You, you didn't get to eat warm food, all right? And everybody would watch and you would go to it and I'm telling you, and you would pick it up and be like, Hello? And if they said your dad's full name, then you'd just hang up on him, all right, because it was a telemarketer. And so that was, I know, you Google it, it's crazy. And so, but not today. Any person, anytime, you're going to think about this next time you call somebody. Anytime you call somebody and you get their voicemail, you know what happened? Here's what happened. They went, nah. And they sent you there every single time. And so essentially what Jesus is doing is he gets a phone call from Bethany and he goes, nah. And then boom, shoots them to voicemail, sort of, okay? That's what's going on here. And then, after this, after two days of ignoring, it seemingly ignoring the prayer, prayer request, after, then he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. If you've walked with the Lord for a while, um, I don't know if you've noticed, God's timing is not our timing. And here's partly why, because God is eternal, and we are not. See, God, God doesn't experience the world as past, present, and future. The, his very name, uh, Yahweh, means I am that I am, which means he's eternally forever. He just is in this eternal present. It's why the Bible will say things like, um, to, to he who was and is and is to come, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God, because he is just always there. And so if you've walked with the Lord for a while, you know this, is that he's rarely early, and he's never late, and he's always on time. And he just kind of operates in his own timing. And so after two days, he says, let's go to Judea again. Verse 8, and the disciples said to him, Rabbi, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Don't you love it when uh, we try to give Jesus information as if he needs it? We all do this, right? We do it in our prayer, prayer times all the time. Hey, uh, dear God, you know, I'm just bringing my friend Ted from work. You know, Ted, he's like five foot eight, kind of losing his hair a little bit. You know, good guy and his wife. She's all right. I don't know if she's going to come or not. But and he's like, yeah, I know Ted. Okay, I made him, and I've been plucking those hairs out just to kind of, you know, wear him out a little bit. So I got it. So they're, they're, they're giving him information. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you sure? 
That's really what he's saying. You sure you want to go there again? Go there again? Verse 9, Jesus answered. Here's his answer. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. To which the disciples are like, huh? Were you answering our question? That's like a random, huh? Anybody got anything? I think all the disciples are like, we have no idea what he is talking about, all right? Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, okay, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. I actually think they're trying to stay plugged in. He did the whole light and work and dark, and they're like, we got nothing. Oh, nap. We know nap. He'll wake up from his nap. He'll be fine. Do you ever say something, and as it's coming out of your mouth, you're like, I should stop talking right now. But you just can't stop yourself. I mean, have you ever have you ever walked up to somebody and be like, oh, wow, when's the baby? Hey, I should not say this. Baby do. And they're like, what baby? Like, what? At the zoo. I mean, what, you know, are you pregnant? No. With anticipation for worship today in the Lord's house. Like, you try to save it, but you just can't. So the disciples are like, oh, man, this is going to be totally okay, Jesus. If he's just napping, he'll be fine. And then we know that Jesus is taking this kind of seriously because it says, now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep, verse 14. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Now remember that the miracles always point to the mission. So Jesus is saying, there's a reason we hung out here for two days. There's a reason that my timing is what it is. And I'm actually glad that I was not there to save him because what's going to happen is so that you will believe. The whole Gospel of John was written by John so that we would believe or trust or surrender our lives to the reality that Jesus actually is God. And in the book of John, this ought to blow your mind. In the book of John, there are seven major miraculous signs that point to the divinity of Jesus. Seven. And in the Bible, seven is the number of completion. And so the eighth sign will be the resurrection, meaning that there's a new creation, there's new life in Jesus. And, and there's seven miraculous signs that point to Jesus. And again, all of them are sort of a peeling back of the curtain so that we can see that Jesus is not just showing off his power. He's not just flexing, but it's foreshadowing what the kingdom of God will be like. Nowhere is one of the signs Jesus just juggling camels because that's what he wanted to do. But they all had to do is w with what it will look like when he reigns supreme and that he is, in, he is in power and has made all things new. Not only are there seven signs that point to the divinity of Jesus, there's also seven I am statements. And every time Jesus starts out a sentence with I am, he is claiming divinity because the tetragram is the name of God in the Old Testament. It's Yahweh. It has four letters. And it's translated into English, I am that I am. In other words, I'm eternal being. I just always was, I always will be, I am. And so when Jesus says things like he's going to say today, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying God is the resurrection and the life. I am those things. He's equating himself with the eternal God. And not only that, every one of the miracles, the major signs that he does in the book of John are to demonstrate the reality and the fulfillment of one of the I am statements. For instance, he says, I am the light of the world. Oh, your eyes don't work? Well, go and wash your face in the pool of Siloam so that can open up your eyes so that you can see that I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. Oh, your legs don't work. Okay, well, get up and walk because if you're going to follow me to the Father, you got to be able to walk. Um, I am the bread of life. Oh, we don't have enough food for everybody here? Here, take this little boy's Happy Meal and spread it out amongst everybody and there's enough food for everybody. Do you understand that every single one of the miracles Miracles was a demonstration of the reality that Jesus is the sum total of every promise of God. And so once again, he says, I'm, not, I'm, glad, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you could believe that I am who I say I am and that I always keep my promises. Verse 16, and so Thomas called the twin. He said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this looks pretty awesome with Thomas, right? It's actually, Thomas got a bum rap in Christianity. Can we just be honest about that? Does anybody know what Thomas's nickname is? Doubting Thomas. See, everybody knows that. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you'd be like, Doubting Thomas, I've heard of him. Okay, 
<clears throat> so I think when we get to heaven and we're getting to know people, right, wouldn't it be so cool to bump into the disciples? And you'd be like, oh, you're Peter? Wow, I thought you'd be bigger, but that's cool, man. You are the man. And, wow, you always made me feel so much better about my discipleship, so it's so nice to meet you. And then you meet John. You'd be like, hey, John, how are you? I know you're super fast, and you can outrun Peter to the tomb, and, you know, I love you, buddy. All right? And then you meet Thomas. And he's like, hey, I'm Thomas. I'm like, doubting Thomas? He's like, what's with all the doubting? All right? I had this one little day when I wasn't sure about the resurrection, but I'm not doubting Thomas. I'm Thomas the Brave. Let us go with him. You're like, yeah, whatever, doubting Thomas. Okay, so. In this moment, Thomas, he's ready to lay down his life for the Lord. Which, by the way, if you back up to the beginning of John, what Jesus' first call in the lives of the disciples was this. Just come and see. Just come and see. Come and see what I'm about to do. Come check this out. Come follow me. Even if you don't believe everything yet, that's fine. Just one step at a time, follow me. And some of you, if you're a brand new Christian, or maybe you're not even, you wouldn't even say you're a Christian yet, you're kind of at that come and see stage. You're not even sure if you believe it or whatever. That's fine. You, but you keep coming back week after week, kind of sticking your toe in the water. Some of you are brand new Christians. And then what happens, though, is Jesus takes you on this journey where you go from come and see to come and die. He never says come and stay. It goes from come and see and you follow after Jesus till you get to this point in your life, like Thomas is here, where you're really ready to surrender and lay down everything for him. Not just because he makes things better, but because he is better than anything this life has to offer. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, which means he is all the way dead. Okay, he is dead, dead. This will be important in a little while. In verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. You see, this was the tradition of the day. It's actually still the way they do it, uh, Orthodox Jew Jews will do it in Jerusalem, is that, um, you see, based on the climate and everything, and they didn't embalm the bodies, if somebody died, they would just bury them immediately. And so it's not like we do. You know, we kind of keep them in the fridge until everybody can get here from out of town and then pot, put them out there. Everybody looks at them. I mean, you've got to admit, funerals are kind of a weird thing. Everybody goes and looks. Oh, they just look so natural. No, they don't. No, they don't. They don't look natural. They look dead because they are. Okay, and then we put it, dig a hole, put them in the ground, throw dirt in their face, and then we come here and eat potato salad and tell stories about them. Oh, he was a good guy. All right, that's great. That's how we do it. And it's going to happen to all of us. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the death rate in America hovers right around 100%. Okay, so that's the way we do it. Now, the way they did it was they would immediately, almost immediately, they would go and put them in a tomb. And then they would have people that would come to their house. And if you didn't have enough people, you could pay professional mourners and wailers. And they would just, ah, for seven days, all right? That's what they would do. And then for 30 days, your family would just kind of hang out and mourn with you. Now, here's what I would say. One of the great things that we could learn from this is, is that God never intends us to go through pain alone. We are not saved as a community, but we are saved to a community. And this is why we push disciple groups like crazy, okay? I know some of you think you're the smartest Christian in the room, all right? And that's fine. You're just self-righteous, but whatever. And every time you show up to disciple group, you're like, I'm not getting anything out of this. What, maybe the thing that you're supposed to get out of it is not learning more Bible verses, but maybe it's so that you're surrounded with a part of the family so that when you go through pain, and if you take Jesus seriously, he said, don't be surprised when you go through pain, that you would have some church family that would surround you so you would not suffer alone. Maybe that's the reason that you should be in a disciple group also so that you could be one that could be with people when they are going through pain. And so they're all there together and they are, they are consoling one another, verse 20. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, Martha, we know from also previous texts that Martha is a get stuff done kind of girl. She's type A, she's driven, she's gonna clean the house before the Lord comes over. And Mary, her sister, she just kind of does her quiet time a lot and she, you know, she's real spiritual. And so Martha gets really aggravated with her all the time. So Martha doesn't wait for Jesus to get to the house. She's gonna go out and meet him, verse 21. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. You see, she's sort of asking herself this question that a lot of people have asked. You see, how are these three realities all true at the same time? God, if you are really all good, and if you really are all powerful, and if you really are all loving, then how in the world is it that this painful thing in my life has happened? It's a legitimate question, is it not? 
Um, and by the way, this is an argument that a lot of times atheists will throw up as kind of a smoke screen to say, well, how can God be all-knowing, all-loving, all-good, and all-powerful? How can all of those things happen at the same time? To which it's actually evidence for the existence of God. The question to ask back is, what do you mean bad things? Bad by what standard? Because if you and I are just a highly evolved plasma over time, there is no such thing as good and bad. There's only just what is. That we should always just, you know, the strong should eat the weak and the strong should survive. But what you're saying is there's something in you that says there's good and there's bad, there's right and there's wrong. That thing in you is called the image of God. You see, that means there must be something greater than us that would establish what is good and bad and what is right and wrong. And every single one of us are created in the image of God, regardless of what you believe. And that's why you know that there are some things in this world that are evil, and there are some things in this world that are beautiful. And that is a reflection of who God created us as his image. So for you to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is a reflection that you do believe that there is a God because there is good and there is is bad. Now what you'll see here though is that well one of the things that let me warn you about if you ever ask God, God why'd you let this happen? Be careful because he might ask you the same thing. I mean you might go Lord if you really are in charge why so many poor people in our world and he might lean in and you go but you know what I was going to ask you the same thing because I have given you enough to spread it out a little bit okay. Not, not because somebody told you to but because from the inside out you knew it was the right thing to do. And so one of the things you'll see here is that Jesus never rebukes Martha for asking these hard questions. Jesus never rebukes Martha and says, oh, you of little faith, keep your questions to yourself. Never, ever, ever. In fact, in fact, he leans in like crazy to her because she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, that God will give you. You see, there is a difference between asking God questions and questioning whether God is sovereign or not. I mean, so let me just encourage you with this. The next time you find yourself in one of those situations, and if you've never been in those situations, guess what? One's coming where you're going to legitimately be able to say, Lord, where were you? What are you doing? I mean, why would you allow this to happen? Why are you letting this go on in my life? And the problem is don't ever just try to shoo that away as if it doesn't actually hurt you. You see, God's a big God. He can handle your question. He's not going to be intimidated by your emotion. He gave you those emotions. And I would say, you just bring it. The fake you is doing just fine. You, a real Jesus died on a real cross for a real you. If you ever read the Psalms, take them seriously. David writes in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's, that, that, that's crying out in pain. And God calls that man a man after his own heart. And so this is what Martha's doing. She brings it to Jesus. She asks him, she's like, Lord, where were you? What are you doing? But I know that whatever you ask from God, that God will give you. Verse 23. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She's thinking theological and he's thinking actual right now. Verse 25. And Jesus said to her, this is important. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's what this means. Jesus says, basically, if you're born once, then you're going to die twice. If you're born twice, then you're only going to die once. If you're only born physically, then when you die, you will die physically and you will die spiritually. And that spiritual death is an eternal separation from God. We call that hell. But if you are born twice, if you're born both physically and you're, and you're reborn spiritually, like Jesus talks about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, then when you die physically, then you will spiritually live with him forever and ever. In other words, everybody spends forever somewhere. Everybody spends forever somewhere. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And then he looks at her and says this, do you believe this? It's the most important question in the Bible. Do you believe this? And then she answers. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see, they're not even talking about Lazarus right now. What they're talking about is what every single one of us ultimately need. And what every single one of us ultimately need, regardless of the current miracle that we think we need, I'm not saying those aren't legit, but the thing that we all need is this. Every single one of us need resurrection from the dead. 
Because all of us by nature and by birth are dead in our own trespasses. And the one thing that we need is we need resurrection from Jesus. And only Jesus can resurrect the dead. Only Jesus can resurrect the dead. And so one of the things that happens to me a lot now because our church grew so fast is I had these young church planners and these young pastors and they call me up and they're like, man, what's the secret to having a church like yours? And I go, okay, show up to Walmart and I'll tell you, all right? And they do, they all show up here and I'm like, all right. And they're like, really, you gonna tell me? I say, yeah, I'm gonna tell you. And, and here's what they're thinking. They're thinking like it's a strategy, you know? And so when they get here, I'm like, all right, get in the truck. And we get in the truck. They're like, where are we going? I'm like, I'm gonna show you the secret. I'm gonna show you the secret of how you grow a church like this. And I take them to the cemetery in Jack's Beach. And I love to take them to that one because the, the tombstones there are the most eccentric things ever, all right? And, and, and they look at me like, are you gonna kill me? What are we doing here, all right? So we go out to the cemetery, and I've done this multiple times, and we just stand amongst the, the tombstones, the graves. And I'm like, all right, so what's your strategy for the de- these dead to come back to life? They're like, what? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what kind of band are you going to get? Or what kind of light system do you need? And you got to have smoke, because if there's no smoke, there's no Holy Spirit. Okay, so what kind of smoke system are you going to have? And how long is the service? And how are the chairs going to be set up? And what kind of building? Is it really rooted in an old Walmart and an old sports bar? I mean, what is it? What's your strategy? And they look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, right, because there's no strategy in the world that can bring the dead back to life. There's only one who is the resurrection and the life. So I'm telling you, I am convinced we could show Shrek and play karaoke up here, and when God says come to life, then, then you come to life. It's only Jesus that can bring the dead to life, and that's what this thing is all about. And so, Amen. Now, here's why this is important. Because the common need that every one of us had is is we all need resurrection regardless of our current circumstances. And so that leads us to know that God's love for us is not determined by our current circumstances. But his love for us is demonstrated fully at the cross. You see, if the greatest need that we have is eternal life, and he has made that miracle possible for anybody that would believe, then that is the greatest miracle. And as you look around like the three-foot circle of your circumstances and you're like, where are you, God? Then you can always point to the cross and know this, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And somebody dies for you, then they are for you. You see, the uniqueness of Jesus is not that he might fix all your problems. And the uniqueness of Jesus is not that he would show you how to fix all your problems. The uniqueness of Jesus is he says he is the fix for every single problem that you face. That's what he means when he says things like, I am the resurrection. This makes him a unique religious leader. There are lots of religious leaders that have come through this world. And the thing that's different about Jesus is every single one of them pointed to a way to God or pointed to a way for you to have a better version of you. Jesus is the only one that offers himself as the way every single time. And yet we live in a world that, that, that kind of wants to minimize Jesus to just one of many good moral teachers. That's impossible to do if, if you actually take the words of Jesus seriously. Because he says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says these audacious things that sound like a crazy man if he's not telling the truth. Do you know in Luke chapter 10, he's talking to the disciples after they get back from this journey. He sent them on, and they're they're all freaking out. They're like, even the demons tremble at your name. And he's like, yeah, I remember this one time when I was in heaven, and I saw Lucifer turn into the devil, and then Dad kicked him into hell. Hold on, time out. What? What? You were were hanging out in heaven before the creation of everything? Uh Uh-huh. Who says that? What good moral teacher says that if that didn't actually happen? Or how about this? In Matthew chapter 23, he's wearing out the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then one time he says, in that woe to you, he says, I keep sending you prophets, but you don't listen to them. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bro, you're 30 years old. How did you send us a prophet 500 years ago? That's what I'm trying to tell you. Before all that, I was in heaven. Be like, all right, Jeremiah, go get him, boy. All right, Ezekiel, your turn. That's what I was doing. Who says that? What good moral teacher says that kind of thing? They don't, unless they are who they say they are, and he is the Christ, the Son of God, and he has eternally existed. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. You see, he is the resurrection and the life, and he asked her, do you believe? And I ask you, do you believe? Because that is the ultimate miracle. He keeps going. Verse 28. And when she said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she says to him, she's going to say the same thing that her sister says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35. The shortest verse in the Bible and one most powerful, especially if you are in a place of pain and you are in the middle of your four days waiting on a miracle. Jesus wept. Now, when it says Jesus wept, the way we think of Jesus weeping and what this word means are not the same thing. Most of us have, you know, our our image of Jesus is really thrown off because of like Sunday school stories and and Bible bookstores with like Swedish Jesus with blonde hair, no split ends, you know, like a bathrobe, Miss America sash. And we think like one tear that is just, you know, gently falling off of his face. Well, in Greek, this word wept, it can also be translated as to snort like a bull, anger, um, uh, a rush of emotion. The thing that comes to mind is if you have, if you've known like a like a ten year old kid that gets kind of mad and sad and angry to the point where they want to fight but they can't control their emotions, so they just make these like crazy like noises. This is what he's doing here. This is what he's doing here. That he's weeping. That he's weeping. Which means this: when we're in times of pain, what the Bible wants us to know is that God weeps with those who weep. And he's given us emotions to navigate life. That even Jesus cried. And God weeps with those who weep. In Psalm 23, when it says that God comforts us, that word there for comfort means that God weeps with those who weep. That God is moved emotionally. The book of Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest um, that, that is not empathetic. That our pain doesn't touch him. That God cares for his people and weeps with and weeps for his people. This also means this, that if you're going to do Christianity the way it was meant to be done in community together, there will be times when we are called to bear one another's burden, which means somebody that you love is going to be going through pain. And please, whatever you do, when you get near them, don't say stupid Christian stuff. Because everybody thinks they can have this great little kitschy phrase, and you can rarely say something that's so awesome it changes everything, but you can quite easily say some dumb stuff and really jack it up. So when I've been into the hospital many, many times, and I think people thought I was going to say something awesome. What do you say? You say, I love you. And you hold hands and you cry with them. And you see, God has given us emotions. God has given us emotions to navigate this thing called life. And I don't know who told us somehow that withholding emotion equals strength. You'll hear this, right? Well, I've got to be strong for my family. Do you think he's stronger than Jesus? Man, if it's time to cry, you cry. Now, I don't cry. I work out. I have hobbies. But some of you, you know, you cry. Ron Armstrong in that video, good gracious, get the boy a Kleenex, right? I mean, seriously. I don't know if it's the hormones in the chicken. I don't know what happened. Uh, And here's why I say that. Because if you knew me, you would know I'm the worst crier in the room. I mean, I can cry. Somebody was telling me the story at the end of the 9 o'clock service, and I get all, like, teared up, man. I mean, it just happens. I have to watch videos like that over and over and over before I preach so I get used to it so I can, like, keep it together. I'm a crier, and I ain't scared to say it. And life change makes me cry. 
We got an elders retreat we leave today. Every time we do one of these, we're just celebrating what God's done, and I cry, and I cry ugly. I don't cry like the Terminator, you know, that one bing. That's not how mine works. I'm looking like an eighth grade girl that watched The Notebook. I'm all like convulsively. <laughs> That's how I do. And I get eyeball to eyeball with my wife and try to tell her how much I love her, and I turn into De Niro. I'm like, what are you talking to me? I mean, my face like implodes on itself. And so God has given us these emotions so that we can navigate life. Now, when I tell you I don't care about your feelings, what I mean is not that I don't care that you have feelings, but your feelings are not your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. But don't let anybody tell you how to feel. Right here, Jesus was sad and angry at sin, and so he cried. And how dumb would it be to some, you know, cheery Christian, don't you love them, when they just come up and be like, Jesus, don't cry. He's in a better place. Shut up, okay? Just shut up for a second. And here's the thing, too. Jesus thought it was important to go and be with that family and cry with that family. He could have launched a miracle grenade from the other Bethany. He did it all the time. He healed people, and he wasn't even there. Hey, you're not dead anymore. I'm like, whoa, okay. But with his friends, he travels a day to be with them and to weep with them. That's what you need in a church. You need some people that could just, man, they can't fix your problems. They can make it better by, by you not being alone in it. You see, in Ecclesiastes 3, the word says this, for for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Here's what I know. If you don't know how to mourn, you'll never know how to dance. And if you don't know when it's time to, to cry, then you'll always feel guilty when it's time to laugh. And so don't let people tell you how to feel. God has given you these emotions for us to navigate life. And sometimes the thing we need is just rallying around people that we love, putting our arms around them and crying with them. And a part of it is because God weeps with those who weep and he has given us these kind of emotions so that we can navigate life. And so there he is, weeping and crying with his friends. Verse 36, and so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, remember, she's got to get everything done and make sure Jesus is, is doing what he's supposed to do. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Now, there's a couple things here. Uh, first of all, um, the Jews had this kind of tradition, this isn't a Bible verse, but they just believed that the, that the soul hovered kind of around the body just in case it could get its way back in for three days, but on the fourth day, then they're quite dead. Okay, so that's one. And then, um, and then also, it, there's just the reality of what's going on here, right? I don't, you should Google this afternoon after lunch, you should Google what happens to the body after it's been dead for four days. Many weird things happen, okay? I was going to show a video, but the creative team talked me out of it, all right? You go, you go into rigor mortis and then back out. It gets all flaccid again. All the blood leaks out of wherever it can get out of, depending on which way you're facing. Um, I mean, there's just what's inside the stomach makes its way outside the stomach. And if you look this up in the King James Version, it literally says, Lord, he stinketh. That's a Bible verse, all right? You should memorize it and just use it out of context. Lord, he stinketh. All right, so there's all that going on. Martha's like, you sure about this, Jesus? Because, you know, it's going to be weird. Verse 40, and Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? By the way, that's true for everybody in here. If you believe, if you surrender your life to Jesus, you will see the glory of God. Regardless of your pain, regardless of your problems, regardless of your past, regardless of your current struggles, if you surrender your life to Jesus, if you believe, if you trust that when he died on the cross, he counted for you, that you will see the glory of God. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Again, again, the miracles always point, always point to the mission. He's not just bringing Lazarus out of the grave for Lazarus's sake. He is pointing to the reality that he is the resurrection and life. I think there's a couple of things. First and foremost, this is a picture of salvation for all of us. That Ephesians chapter two says that we were all once dead in our trespasses and we've been made alive in Christ. What did Lazarus do to be resurrected? Nothing. 
you, you, a dead man cannot do anything on his own to come back to life. You've never seen a dead man go, clear, all right, I'm back, all right? Never, and yet, that's what religion teaches. You work hard enough, and then you can change. But see, that is not the gospel. The gospel is because of God's love and mercy upon us that he calls us out of the grave to be alive. It, that we're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that nobody would have anything to brag about. And then not only that, I think Jesus is also foreshadowing what's going to happen to him in about a week and a half. He wants everybody around to understand, hey, you know what? It is possible for a dead man to come out of the grave because in a week and a half, he's going to demonstrate the same thing. Verse 43. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, theologians say that the reason he says Lazarus, come out, because if he had just stood there in the graveyard and said, come out, then all the dead people, like 50 people come hopping out, be like, what? No, 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 you, 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 go back. You're in the back. Lazarus, come on. All right? So I think that's what's happening. And now, <clears throat> the reason I was hopping is because, remember back at Easter, we found out that, that when they would bury people, they would wrap them in linen cloths like a mummy because they didn't embalm the bodies, and then they would stuff it full of spices and stuff to try to keep the stinkiness to a minimum. And so, when he says, Lazarus, come out, it says... The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Because he can't really walk around like this. So I don't know if he hopped or did the walk of the penguin or whatever, but he makes it out. And imagine what he's thinking. And the first thing that Jesus says to him is this, unbind him and let him go. The way the New International Version trans translates it is this, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Why? Because he's alive now. And living people don't need to wear grave clothes. First of all, they stink, and they don't fit anymore, and they bind you up, and it's for freedom that you've been set free. And so he says to Lazarus, the first thing, not do better, try harder, and you better say thank you. He doesn't. He says, take off those grave clothes and just go free, man. So imagine, imagine a couple weeks later, if, if you would be like at a dinner party with Lazarus. You know, Jesus shows up and he's sitting down getting ready to eat dinner. And then there's, there's somebody, Jesus is like, who's the mummy? And Lazarus is like, it's me, boss. Like, what are you doing, man? Why do you still have your grave clothes on? You're ruining dinner for everybody. You smell horrendous, all right? And then they don't fit you at all anymore. He's like, I don't know. I just, they're comfortable. Do you know that's what a lot of Christians do? If you're in Christ, here's what has happened to you that you were dead in your trespasses. You were in the pit and in the grave of your own sin, really by our own doing. And at just the right time, Jesus stepped into your life and he called your name because he knows you by name. He called your name and he said, you get out of there. And you went from dead in your own trespasses to alive or reborn in Christ. And you're still covered up with all the junk that was in your life, bound up and tangled. And he says, it's time for you to take those grave clothes off, not because the life of Christianity is that of sin management. It's not about just quit trying to do bad things. That stuff just doesn't fit you anymore. And the reason it doesn't fit you anymore is because that's not who you are anymore. One way to say it is this, is you don't have to continue to do the things that you used to do because you're not the person that you used to be. So take off those grave clothes and live. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. You see, we call this progressive sanctification. That the moment that you are reborn in Christ, the moment that he calls you up out of the grave for the rest of your days, man, you got to just take off those old stinky grave clothes. And here's why. That's just not who you are anymore. Living people don't wear dead man's clothes. And some of the things that you've been reverting back to, they're just dead man's clothes. I mean, that pride and that greed and that lust and that anger and using people and caring about what everybody thinks of you, it's not that you should just stop trying to do those things because those are bad things. That's not what it's about. It's about your identity. Those things just don't make sense in your life anymore. Because here's the reality. If you actually believed you are who God says you are, then all of that stuff would begin to change. That's why we've been singing over and over and over that this song. He's a good, good father. That's just who he is. And we are loved by him. That is who we are. You see, the way the old Puritans, what they talked about is they talked about 
And I know you read Puritan literature all the time like I do, okay? Jonathan Edwards says that the progressive sanctification, which just means like continually becoming more and more like Jesus, what we've got to do is there's got to be mortification and vivification. Mortification means the killing of sins that are trying to kill you. Now, Jesus ultimately paid the price for all of them. But too many times what we as Christians try to do is we don't understand that the sin in our life is trying to kill, steal, and destroy us. And so it's not to be petted. Your sins are not to be tamed. Your sins are not to be domesticated because they are trying to kill you. Every year it happens, does it not? Every year it happens. Some on the news, Jaguar eats a lady's head off. And you're like, who would own a Jaguar? And then sure enough, they interview her family. We can't believe Fluffy ain't Nana because Fluffy's a Jaguar. You shouldn't have a pet one at your house. Because what happens? It's an apex predator. It runs out of kibbles and bits, and there's Nana. It eats Nana. That's just how it goes. None of us are surprised. The family's like, ah. The same thing is true in our lives when we treat sin that way. That we, we've got to kill the sin that's trying to kill us. That means you need accountability in your life. You need to be memorizing verses. So every time the enemy comes at you, we've got an it is written. You've got to be honest about what you struggle with with some people in your life. Why? Because the cross has already outed us so you can quit faking it. We, temptation is tempting and you should be honest about it. You should have parameters in your life. You should have software on your computers. Whatever it takes to just tell that sin, no way. No way. Those clothes just don't fit me anymore. Doesn't make any sense. I'm not wearing that stinky junk anymore. But that's not enough. Because what you don't do does not define your relationship with Jesus. Mortification is important, but so is vivification. That means that we do the things that stir our affections for the Lord. It's just like when it's the reason you should take your wife on a date. So you continually put yourselves in environments that just continuously stir your affections for one another so it doesn't grow stale and you don't just become a butler and a maid. Similar thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. That's what this is about. It's a big part of what this is about. That we would gather together as believers and encourage one another and sing songs to the Lord and study the word. But that's not enough. Maybe for you it's a disciple group. Maybe for you it's some things that aren't just written out specifically in the scriptures like long walks on the beach. Or for some of you it's a sunrise. Now, for some of you to get up early enough to see the sunrise would ruin your whole relationship with Jesus. All right, You just say cuss words the whole time. So don't do it. Nobody gets to tell you what that is, but be honest. What are the things that are stirring my affections for Jesus? This does not happen overnight. It happens over time. Those of you that are parents, have you ever seen your child grow? No. I can remember when we first brought JP home and Gretchen would leave and she'd come back a couple hours later and she'd go, how'd it go? I'm not sure. I don't know if it's working. I watched him the whole time and nothing changed. I mean, there he is. He just sort of laid there like nothing. He didn't get smarter. He didn't say anything. He didn't throw a ball. Nothing is happening. Little did I know that what God had started was continuously slow at times, continuously working. And then, and then um, one day you just look over. It's been 10 years. But one day you look over and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's like a little man, right? Or if you're measuring people, you're measuring your kid's growth and you take a couple, couple months off and then you come back and you're like, oh my gosh. You grew like three inches and went through four pairs of shoes in one summer. I didn't even notice. You never look over at the table and you just see the guy go, never. <laughs> this is what this process can be like for us. Listen, it is not love to point out the mat over the miracle, if you remember that from a few weeks ago. But it is also not love to, to have people in your life that you call friends that you love to walk around in their grave clothes and be like, yo, dude, they just don't fit anymore. So take off the pride. Take off the insecurity. Take off the anger. And take those things off because they're binding you up. And it's for freedom that you have been set free. And see, the reality is, a lot of us have tried to do this, but the problem is, is that you tried to do it under your own power. You tried to do it under your own power. And what we have to do is, is get out of the sin management and start leaning into believing you are who he says you are. And if you're in Christ, you're alive. You were alive. That's just who you are. That he looked into the grave of your own life and said, come on, get out. And he brought you to a newness of life. And so, yeah, you kill those sins that are killing you. And you do the things that stir your affection for Jesus. And you lean in with everything you're made of. That the same power that was available to Lazarus 2,000 years ago, and even better than that, the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave that Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, that same power is available to you and to me right now, right now. 
So don't let your current circumstances three feet around you tell you how much God loves you. The cross tells you once and for all. And when you are going through that pain in your life and you're waiting on a miracle, understand, understand that God weeps with those who weep. And he's given you those emotions to navigate this life. And fundamentally, you know this. You don't have to do the things you used to do. You don't have to think the thoughts you used to think. You don't have to be ruled by the same emotions that you used to be ruled by because the old you is dead. And the new you has been brought to life by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for every man, woman, and student in this place. God, I would, I would just pray, God, that we would believe that we are who you say we are. And Lord, the, the things in our life, the activities in our life that do not line up with our identity as holy and righteous, as imputed by you, God, that we would take those things off, that we would be unbound so that we could walk in the life that you have called us to walk into. And God, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would give us the ability that any time, any time the enemy begins to whisper those things of our past, we can just let him know, hey, you're talking about the old dead me. That, that, that me is dead and gone. And now, not by cause of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf, that I don't have to do the things I used to do because I'm not the person I used to be because of who Jesus has called me to be. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Hey, we respond to the gospel. It's what we do. In my opinion, this is the most important part of the whole service because this is when we respond to the gospel that we have heard. Lazarus didn't call out for Jesus. Jesus called out for Lazarus. And so the way we respond is we're going to sing a song called The Same Power to remind us all that we have access to the same power that brought Lazarus out of the grave and brought Jesus out of the grave. And we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and our best, because God first loved us by giving us his best. And know this, every single time you partner with this church financially, you, you are partnering with a movement of God where hundreds, not thousands of people have heard Jesus call their name and call them out of the grave. And we respond by praying. And some of you walked in here with some old grave clothes on and you need to just come to the altar and lay them down at the feet of Jesus and walk out of here free. Let us respond.